Our reading of God's holy word, as opposed to our singing, is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 1, beginning in verse, uh, beginning in verse 16 and extending to verse 4 of chapter 2. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, we saw that the term salvation is a pretty dynamic word. We use it religiously, it rolls off the tongue, we're used to hearing it in church, but salvation is being snatched from the jaws of destruction. It's being pulled out of the way of a runaway freight train, it is uh, being delivered from the most terrible kind of thing you can imagine, it's extremely dynamic. But it does bring up a question when you hear it, and that is... Saved from what? Clearly, Paul is not talking about being saved from a burning building or a rampaging lion. What are we saved from? Our current culture makes that question just a little nebulous. The uh, self-esteem movement, which has truly permeated into all modern thinking, has taught us from being a wee little child upwards that there's nothing wrong with me. I am good enough. I am talented. And doggone people like me. That's very nice for you to say, but is it true? Uh, The scripture would seem to say no. The modern psychology movement has also made it nebulous in the sense that uh, the foundation of that movement, being Freudian, throws a great deal of uh, shade on the idea that I could be saved from anything. Psychology's Freudian roots have the assumption that a human being is set in stone very early. Who you are is who you are, and really past about three years old, you're not going to be anything else. If you go to psychotherapy and you pursue uh, that, it's really not to get better or have anything good develop. It's really just kind of to understand who you are because you're set. And so the idea of salvation uh, is foolishness in that sort of what mindset. Uh, modern culture is just simply absolutely at war with the idea that you need to be saved from anything at all. The scriptures, however, uh, have a different story to tell. Paul begins by expressing in verse 16 to 17 that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is salvation. Why would he express it that way? Why would he say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, it's because human beings don't tend to be novel. They tend to be the same no matter what age you're in. And the world culture has always been at war with the gospel. They may not have been staring in a mirror and talking about how good they are, 
they may not be thinking in terms of the subconscious, the id, the superego and such, but every generation has the deep desire to push down the gospel of Christ and not hear it and to shame those who hold to it and proclaim it. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is salvation for everyone who believes. Um, salvation from what? Well, the first assumption you would think would be salvation from sin. Modern culture refuses to believe that sin exists. The psychological establishment refuses to believe it exists. But we know in Scripture that sin is a reality. Sin is any want of conformity to the law of God, either passively or actively. And so we would assume that the apostle is telling us we are desperately in need of deliverance from our sins, and that is why he is excited to proclaim the gospel. There are passages in Scripture that very clearly do take the word salvation in that direction. In fact, the very name of our Savior is given because he will, quote, save us from our sins. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, while Joseph, his soon-to-be adoptive father, is contemplating what to do in the situation he's in, and we read, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord desires to create a peculiar people, a people that is not like the vast majority of humanity. The Lord desires to sanctify his people, to deliver them from sin, to, to see it conquered. But in this passage, that's not what the apostle focuses on. Rather, the thing that you desperately need deliverance from, the disaster that is about to happen to you, the monster that is going to claw you to death, is not your sins per se, it's the consequences of them. The Apostle spends the second half of this chapter talking about the wrath of God. If you look at verse 16 and 17, uh, the connection between them and verse 18 is connected by the word for, which means because. Why do you need salvation? Why do you need delivering? For the wrath of God is revealed. Humanity's biggest problem is not their sins. It is alienation from God. Their sinful nature is the reason for that. Their sinful nature produces every sin that happens. But the absolute disaster, the enemy you need deliverance from, 
is first and foremost God himself. The Bible says God is a wrathful God. This doesn't mean that God is an angry God. The two terms are not the same. Wrath is what a judge brings down on you. Wrath is the sentence of a righteous judge upon an unholy person. And the wrath of God is this very moment being revealed. It's not something that we are waiting for, although it is going to have dramatic uh, manifestation in the future. But the wrath of God is taking place this very moment, says Paul. It is being poured out on all mankind. And what you need deliverance from is God. The average person views God as he should be kind of like Superman. He has all this power. He ought to be uh, flying around the world and solving all of our problems. Uh, he ought to be dealing with starvation and injustice. He ought to be delivering us from sickness because that's his job, right? I mean, he's, he is the, the good God. Surely the good God would solve all of our problems. But what they don't realize is that the fallenness of this world and everything in it that is harmful, bad, hurtful, all of that so far from God delivering us Superman style, God gave it to us. The world is cursed. And even uh, injustice is a manifestation of God's wrath upon earth, God is showing his wrath on a rebellious race every moment of every day. And if you are part of mankind, this means you. You are in need of salvation from God. God begins as your enemy, not your friend. You are out of reconciliation with him, and you desperately need salvation from him. You are not just a sinner. You are possessed by sin. It holds on to you as a master. It has taken hold of your nature uh, you don't do the things you want to do. Uh, you do do the things you don't want to do. Something has a hold of you as though you were a slave. A few Lord's Days ago, I asked the question, is the greatest evil of mankind slavery? And in that context, the answer was no. Uh, Americans have a cultural taboo because of the Civil War and everything that happened in there that slavery is the worst of all evils. There's nothing badder than slavery. This is just terrible. The Bible doesn't have that view. In fact, in Moses' law, slavery is actually the penal system, and it's much more just, much more uh, human dignity affirming than our warehousing of people. But in this context, if I were to ask the question, is slavery the greatest evil? 
This morning, I would have to say yes. Because we are slaves to a truly, truly destructive master. A master who wants to destroy us uh, gleefully, gleefully wants to destroy us, body and soul, eternally. And that master is sin. Verse 18 to the end of the chapter is a famous passage of scripture. And it pictures a master-slave relationship. And we are the slave and sin is the master. We are told because of our rebellion to God, which we'll look at here in a few moments what that is, God, quote, gave us over. <clears throat> that is the language of being handed over to a master. God gave us over to our lusts, Paul says. And in saying that, he is not limiting that giving over to merely lust. He's giving an example of the giving over. But we are given over to sinful desires. And now that we are given over to sinful desires, God gives us over twice more. He gives us over to twisted and perverse sinful desires. Again, using an example, but a definitely true one, we were given over to sexual immorality at level one. At level two, we're given over to perverse, anti-natural sexuality. Uh, we're getting worse. Our master is uh, clutching us even more firmly. And then finally, at the third giving over, and remember that numbers matter in scripture so that if you are given over three times, you're given over totally. Uh, in the third one, we are given over to a debased mind to do those things which ought not to be done. We are totally, utterly the servants of sin. We may have, because we are still in the image of God, uh, a certain desire to do the right, but we don't because we're slaves we are by very nature ripped by slavery. Whatever happened to humanity? When I teach at Eastern, I teach religion. And one of the things I point out is that if there wasn't a sense of deep need and brokenness in humanity, you wouldn't have religion or you wouldn't have philosophy. The entire humanity feels a brokenness. It feels that it has a deep need. But it certainly does not agree on the level of that need or where it comes from. If you were to ask an average non-religious person, um, are you a perfect and good person? Uh, if they were in public, they'd probably say, you know, I'm, I'm as good as the next guy. But if you talk to them in private and they trusted you, they'd say, no, no, really, I'm kind of a jerk. But if you ask them, are you basically a pretty good person? They say, yeah, you know, I, I really am. I'm basically pretty good. Most of mankind's religions effectively go that route. Judaism says you are a 
flawed person, but you basically want to do the right thing. Islam says you're a cussed rebel, but you're able to do the right thing. Uh, many of the Eastern religions say you do the right thing if outside pressures didn't make you do otherwise. This is an amazingly positive outlook on what it means to be human. I, I just need a little tweaking. I'm, I'm basically a good guy. The Bible has a totally different picture. The Bible describes all of humanity in this passage. And it says that your foolish heart is darkened. The heart is that inner part of you that thinks and feels. Uh, it's where your thoughts come from. It's where your emotions come from. The average person would say, you know, at, at that level, I'm a basically good person. The scriptures say, not at all. There is a corruption that has gone deep into your very internal self. Your foolish heart is darkened. You say to people round about, I am wise, but you're really a fool. The Bible says that you are given over to sin so utterly and completely that your mind has been affected. Your debased mind. Sin as a nature causes us to think wrong. It is a, it is a brain damage kind of situation. And it brings us even to the point where at the end of the chapter, we are so given in to, to sin's clutches that we, quote, invent ways to do evil. The Holy Spirit, speaking by the apostle, lays out sin after sin after sin at the end of this chapter. But he has to say, now you have to understand, this is just kind of a... Uh, a brief icing on the cake because we are so at a point we invent ways to do evil and we approve people who do evil. That is not somebody who is basically pretty good. That is what in the reformed world we call being totally depraved. Sin is no light and inconsequential affliction. It is long-lived and deep-rooted. It has changed who we are. It is not only what we do. In fact, in some ways, the fact that we do sin is the least part of the problem. We do sin because we are sin, because we have been so changed by this master-slave relationship. And God is wrathful. God looks on humanity and says, this is not what I made. In the Heidelberg Catechism, there is a question that asks, did God make man so wicked and perverse? And the answer is no. God made man upright, made man able to fulfill his law, made man um, able to glorify him. 
But we have been enslaved. We are not what we were. And the wrath of God is being revealed this very moment because of that. Why do we die? We die because we're in rebellion to God. Why does betrayal happen? It's because we are in rebellion to God. Why does frustration and disappointment, sickness, and uh, all host of ever malady take place on earth? It takes place <clears throat> because the wrath of God is falling this very moment. Now, understand what I'm saying. I am not saying the reason you got the flu last week is God is particularly mad at a particular sin that you have done. I wouldn't be able to do that anyway. I'm not a prophet. But I am saying the fact that you are not who you were at 20, the fact that your body is literally decaying around you as you go about your life, the fact that sickness exists in the world, all of this is the wrath of God on a rebellious people. Everywhere you look, you can see God is wrathful. And you desperately need delivered from it. Especially since you are not ignorant. There is a strange paradox in our chapter. Paul tells us that mankind... <clears throat> tries to uh, submerge the knowledge of God, but it's kind of like pushing a beach ball down in the ocean. Um, he can't really do it. It constantly pops up. Paul says that men knew God, and uh, the knowledge of God is kind of required for men to hate God, which men do. They push down the truth and unrighteousness, but God has made himself known to all mankind. It is my contention that there is no real atheist. Now, people who would claim to be atheists would say, no, I'm an atheist. But uh, every society of humanity in every place and time has been, quote, religious. It has known that a supernatural world exists, you cannot find any human beings anywhere that don't have this knowledge. Uh, we live in a world that has been created. Uh, we are in a causal universe. We're in a world where one cause leads to another cause, leads to another cause. You yourself had a cause, and those two causes loved each other very much, and that's where you came from. And they had causes as well. Uh, at some point, the average human mind has to say, in such a reality, there has to be a first cause that has power and isn't caused and has knowledge to be able to create the world we're in. And all of humanity has basically affirmed that. Um, they know God is there. But their foolish hearts have been darkened because they have fallen into the roots of sin, which is, according to Paul, idolatry. 
if you study the ancient Christian teachers, they all generally came to a consensus that the very <coughs> root of all sin is actually human pride. And from a philosophical point of view, there is some real truth to that. But Paul doesn't use the term pride, he uses idolatry. And when you think about idolatry, you think about paintings and statues and images of, of pagan gods. Uh, what's, what's Paul talking about here? Well, idolatry is when you have something that you worship higher than God, as a god. Certainly, Shiva and Zeus and Allah qualify. But all of these things come out of the human imagination. They come out of the human heart. And the human heart has decided to worship something that God has created, rather than the creator of those things. This is true if your God is Shiva. It is also true if your God is you. If you value your desires over God, you are worshiping the creation rather than the creator because you are creation. God created you. And yet you have a love of something greater than him. And in this love of something created, that was the, that was the means <coughs> by which your foolish heart became darkened. That was the means by which you became fools. And what you did, what I did, what all humanity did, was we decided to trade that which was glorious, to use the apostle's word, for that which was an image. The scriptures picture the first people being under shepherds of God in a garden, and God would come by in the cool of the evening and say, how's things going? The very God of gods, the, the creator of all things, the most perfect, the most righteous, the most blessed of all beings, deigned to condescend to come hang out with us. All goodness, all knowledge, all righteousness just wanted to fellowship. Can you imagine anything more glorious than that? There is nothing above God in glory, nothing above God in goodness, and God chose to be our friend. And we, as a race, decided we can find something better than that. And we decided to put something higher than that, which was, quote, an image. Of course, the mind immediately goes to the, to the statues and to the paintings. But you need to think about the root idea of what an image is. What is an image? An image is illusion. Every piece of art, every image made, is not a real thing. It's, a, it's an illusion of a thing. And mankind chose to create an illusion of something valuable,
and decide to care about it more. Now, what that thing is doesn't really matter. It's, it's an idol. It offends a holy God. And when that change is made, it changes the man. And we fall into every possible depravity. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and the testimony of how Israel turned into a truly wicked people, where every kind of moral debasement and filth took place, over and over and over again, the prophets tell them, you turned to other gods, therefore you turned to adultery. You turned to other gods, therefore you turned to murder. You turned to other gods, therefore you turned to theft. You may ask why that is, and the answer would be multiplicitous. There's a lot of reasons for that. But when you are an idolater, you are decaying internally. And so when you commit adultery against God, it becomes very easy to commit adultery against your spouse. When you commit adultery against God, it's very easy to become a murderer. It's very easy to become a thief because you have already committed the greatest offense of all. You have been separated from God by your nature. There is no worse sin than that. Any sin that you can throw up and say, okay, that's, that's depraved, that's terrible. From the eyes of God, it pales with the fact that you love something more than God. And so you are open to every possible sin. And that's why Paul rolls them out at the end of the chapter. Uh, once we have, have worshipped something besides God, there is really no stopping describing the evil that we can do. I had an associate minister who preached through Romans at one point, and he decided that it would be a good idea to give a topical sermon on every sin that Paul lists here which means that he would have taken nearly a whole year of topical sermons to tell you about bad stuff. That got nipped in the bud. And, and the reason is not because I don't want to preach sin. I don't want to preach sin, but I, I do want to talk about sin. But that's not really what Paul is trying to accomplish. Uh, that list of sins at the end of the chapter, they're all really kind of straightforward we can read them and kind of understand what's being talked about because intuitively we know them at a heart level because we're really kind of good at all that. Do you really need to have a whole sermon on what unforgiveness means or not respecting parents or uh, hating your neighbor? No, nah, you're good at that. I'm good at that. And Paul is rolling them out just to show you how many things we are good at, at being bad. We need salvation. And when I say we, I mean it. It is possible to preach this passage and do it in a way that you point at other people. Uh, especially if you're conservative, this passage is tailor-made for that. Paul says, God gave you over to sexual immorality. God gave you over to homosexuality. 
and twisted sexual desires. God gave you over to a debased mind. He gave you over to it. I, I don't do those things, but you have been given over to that. The only thing is, in the original manuscript of Romans, Paul didn't write in chapters. There's no chapter break that goes into chapter two. There's no changing the flow of thought. And Paul immediately says, after he describes all this sinfulness, now you're probably feeling kind of superior to all those people I talked about. But the only problem is you fit in the list somewhere. You may not hate your mom and dad. You may not be given over to homosexuality, but gossip and slander and backbiting, uh, those things do make the biblical lists. And Paul says these are, quote, the same things. It might be a little smoother translation if it were said to be these are the same kind of things. That's really what the apostle is saying. We are all in this list, but we don't all get enslaved in the exact same way. There are sins in this list that honestly don't appeal to me, and there are sins in this list that really do. <laughs> same thing's true with you, I'm positive. And so, as Paul describes mankind, understand he is describing all mankind. He is describing the man in the pulpit. He is describing the eldership board. He is describing the deacons. He is describing the best person you have ever met. He is describing you. In the Gospel of John, there is a place where our Lord cured a man of blindness. And when he did, all sorts of trouble broke out he got brought before the Pharisees and the Pharisees didn't like Jesus much. And so they didn't want this healing of a blind man to be a good thing. And the more they <coughs> pressed in on him, the more the blind man gave glory to Christ who gave sight to him. And it finally kind of comes to a head where uh, the Pharisees quote, answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Was the Pharisees correct? Well, halfway. The truth is, the man born blind was completely born in sin. David the king, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in that famous Psalm 51 says, I was conceived in sin and in iniquity, my mother bore me. So sure, the blind man, formerly blind man, was in fact born in sin. But then in the second half of their statement, they say, how dare you lecture us? And there is no us. Religious scholar, pious reformer, that's what the Pharisees viewed themselves as. And they thought, you know, total depravity, that's you. That's all of us. I'll give you a spoiler for next week. 
Paul is going to spend the next chapter and a half making sure you know it's all of us. Why is Paul doing that? Well, if you're going to share the good news of God with other people, you have to know what that good news saves them from to be able to explain it to them. The average person may feel like the world is awful, but he doesn't realize how awful it is. He needs to know his sin. And as I've emphasized the last couple of weeks, one of the reasons why the book of Romans is sent to Rome is because Paul is going there and he is going to incorporate the Roman church into his evangelistic efforts. He's going to bring all the disciples on board to share the gospel with their fellow countrymen. And so he has to emphasize sin. But there is an even deeper reason for emphasizing sin at this point. And that is every evangelist is, in fact, as much a sinner as anybody else at a certain level. In the Reformation, we discovered an amazing truth in God's word. We discovered that we are simultaneously justified, but also paradoxically, we are still functionally sinners. Um, the gospel can only really be understood in that context. If you don't realize you are a sinner, you can't really share the good news of what God has done in Christ because you don't get it. Your neighbor is a sinner. The homosexual is a sinner. The LGBTQ, ABC, PDF, whatever, is a sinner. You are also a sinner. God says all sin is sin, and when you bear the good news of what God has done in Christ to someone, you need to realize how utterly saved you have been. You were no different than anybody else. If Jesus Christ were pulled from your life this very minute, you would be no different than anybody else. The only goodness you possess is Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God. It has nothing to do with you. And you need to deeply feel that. There is no pride that should be in the Christian heart. You judge someone else, you talk about yourself. Because he could easily be over there talking about you. He probably is, to be honest. That's how human beings work. But we are desperately in need of salvation. We are in need of salvation from the wrath of God. Something needs to stop this coming disaster, which is happening day by day. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it will save me from God. You need to be a friend of God. The world will mock the gospel. The world still desperately needs the gospel. The gospel will set us free from our sins, but at a much more deeper level, the greatest thing is the gospel will reconcile us to a holy God. The God who was our friend in the garden will be our friend again. Can you think of anything more glorious than that.